0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com.
2: I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Kat Johnson kicked the season off with an episode about food and football, so now we're turning to one of my favorite sports, talking about cookbooks. We'll take a sneak peek at a few recipe breakthroughs that Rose Levy-Berenbaum discovered while working on her 12th cookbook. You know, so this was such a eureka
1: thing. People ask me if I still keep learning... And yeah, just thinking about it and trying to find a better way, it happens.
2: And hear about the challenges of writing a book about alcohol from HRN host Souther Teague.
0: The history of drinking is very blurry. Because people were drinking and no one was writing, taking notes.
2: Plus, we'll get all the expert dish about the most exciting cookbook titles heading to bookstores this fall.
1: Like jazz music, has been a part of American cuisine for, for centuries.
2: Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the next episode drops.
3: Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Leut, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. The North American Free Trade Association, or NAFTA, has very much been in the news lately, with the pending renegotiation renego- re- of the trade agreement close to being finalized. So I could think of no better time to talk about the lessons learned from the past 25 years of this agreement, with a special focus of on food, this being a food policy show and all. Joining me uh, today in the studio is author Alicia Galvez, professor of Latin American and Latino studies at Lehman College of the City University of New York. She's also the author of the new book, Eating NAFTA, Trade, Food Policies, and the Destruction of Mexico, which looks at how free trade policies have affected food production, traditional culture, and the collective health of the American people. Alicia, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Jenna.
3: Okay, the title of your book, The Destruction of Mexico. It's pretty, pretty bold statement.
4: A little polemical, but yeah. uh, I think it, in a lot of ways, that's what we're talking about. We're mm-hmm. talking about the destruction of a kind of lifestyle in Mexico that lasted for millennia um, and has really been under threat in unprecedented ways in the last 25 years.
3: All from the United States and just a matter of two or so decades. Exactly. Um, Okay, so let's, stepping back, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided, why and when you decided to write this book?
4: Yeah, so I am not the person you would think of. I'm not a usual suspect to write a food policy or trade analysis. Um, I am a cultural anthropologist, and I came to this topic by way of studying Mexican migration for two decades. I um, have done my field work here in New York uh, looking at the waves of Mexican migrants mostly from the state of Puebla Mm -hmm. and then I've done a lot of research um, and spent a lot of time and made a lot of friends in in Puebla and surrounding states that have sent so many migrants to New York And it was that that led me to be really, well, I love eating. I mean, Uh, uh, yes, (laughs) obviously. I'm sure that we share that with all of the listeners. Yes, And I love nothing more than sitting at someone's table and hearing about their life and watching them cook and helping them cook and eating what comes of it. And I was able to see over time how the way people eat has changed a lot, um, often as a product of the change in the economy that has driven many families to be separate from one another. Mm -hmm. Um, It has changed people's health because of uh, the types of availability, the types of food, the availability of highly processed foods. Um, And so many of my friends, family members have gotten sick and many have passed away from diet related illness so much that it It's shocking. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the towns that I know the best is a rural community, and if you walk down the street there, people will say, you know, every second person here has diabetes.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, that, I mean you, re, you uh, cite some really shocking statistics yeah. in your book. But I just have to ask real quick, uh, cultur- cultural anthropologist,
4: uh-huh.
3: um, can you just explain kind of yeah. what that is for somebody who might not know? Yeah, so no dinosaurs, no fossils. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, contrary to popular belief,
4: um, unlike Indiana Jones, we mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> work with living communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so cultural anthropology is really looking at the ways that people live their lives it's everything from material culture, like food and food and, um, you know, things that people make and do, but Mm -hmm. also symbolic culture, as well as the meanings that people make, the way that they communicate with each other, family structures. Mm -hmm. Um, And I came to see that NAFTA was really disrupting all of these aspects of life. And so I... Didn't necessarily want to write a book about a trade deal, but it was so <laughs> you, d- you didn't find that it's not why you wake up every morning exactly. to talk about trade deals. But I came to see that it was having such an incredible impact on the lives of people that I know and who I've known for many, many years that mm-hmm. I had to have a better understanding of it.
3: And so let's let's talk about some of those um, some of those re- repercussions or uh, you know the the effects. So, um, but before we do, I want to kind of go. Back to back to basics you know uh-huh. just laying out all the things we're going to be talking about in this episode and so you know I'm can you tell us in, in very broad strokes what NAFTA originally proposed to do right and then we'll um, you know talk about kind of you know just just in general the trade agreement right um, very broad strokes and then we'll talk about like in theory what was the intention
4: yeah so there's the hidden story and then there's the official story mm-hmm. so the
3: official story if you
4: go on YouTube and watch the speech that Bill Clinton gave on the day of NAFTA's inauguration. He talks about mutual prosperity and how the U.S. was going to, U.S. businesses were going to see, you know, this incredibly increased territory in which they could operate and that that would lead to mutual prosperity. Um, That was the official branded version of Mm -hmm. NAFTA after it was signed. But we have to go back a lot sooner than that to see how NAFTA was built. And NAFTA was built, um, it was it was the brainchild of very wealthy investors, um, both U.S. and Mexican investors, who were concerned that Mexico was going to, the then president uh, was concerned with protecting Mexico from globalization, and they were concerned that that would mean that they would not be able to do business. Mm -hmm. And so they started to first paint that president as being a little bit, crazy and unstable and incapable of making decisions. Because he was protectionist. Because he was protectionist. Um, And then they started to circulate the idea of a free trade agreement um, in North America. Um, And this is something that was really... very popular among the Harvard-trained economists that came to constitute the the cabinet of the next president Carlos Salinas Gortari, mm-hmm. who today is you know just considered a nemesis of the Mexican people. People in Mexico almost universally hate him. Wow! Um, and he, in the late eighties, thought that you know Mexico would he he d- believed that Mexico's prosperity would come from outside investment. And so he thought that would come from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Europe shrugged its shoulders and didn't really care about doing a deal with Mexico. And the US said, well, we would do something. Um... And then Canada eventually joined the deal as well, um, but there wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of interest on the part of the U.S. The U.S. didn't think that Mexico's economy was big enough to really matter. Right. And so the U.S. Uh, said, you know, you're going to do things, but you're going to do it according to our terms. And that was where we see the beginning of the bullying um, of the U.S. towards Mexico with this deal and very specific things that were built into it to benefit the U.S. over Mexico's interests. So the biggest example of that is that we see that the U.S. made it um, a non-starter to talk about migration.
3: Yeah, what did what did that what does that mean? I mean, what do you mean talk about migration? So yeah. <laughs> to, to prevent migration. Well, Mexico thought you know if we're going to de-
4: do a deal um, with our North American neighbors, mm-hmm. then they sort of had a vision like the European Union that there would be a you know kind of a. Breaking down of all the barriers. Okay. Right. Okay. So that yeah. goods, capital, and people would be able to flow freely amongst the signatory countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and the U.S. said, "Yeah, that's nice. We'll do goods and capital, but not people." Okay. Um, and that was just from the from the start. So Mexico sort of had this vision of a three legged stool, mm-hmm. um, but. The United States took off one leg right away, so the whole deal has sort of been wonky since then. So,
3: what would that have done, though, if it was more like the European Union? What were the benefits of that kind of three-legged proposal have been? uh,
4: Well, we wouldn't be talking about immigration as a problem today. Mm -hmm. Um, The the incredible militarization of the border, the dehumanization of migrants, the detention and deportation of millions of people, family separation—all of these things are product of of a criminalization of the flow of people. Um, Which ironically spiked, right? Exactly. After the,
3: after the deal went into effect. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, what, I mean, in terms of like the labor force though, so, you know, what would that have meant?
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, we, in some ways it's hard to even know, right? Like we yeah. can't necessarily go back in time or look in our crystal ball, but I would imagine that we would have seen A more sane and humane uh, flow um, and circularity of people. Because Mm -hmm. my experience with Mexican migration over many years is that very few, I've met very few people who actually ever wanted to migrate. People migrate because.
3: It's very contrary to popular American belief that yeah, everyone's clamoring to get into the myth. United States. It's
4: um, Most people, you know, some people say uh, there's, you know, the American dream and then there's the Mexican dream. And the Mexican dream um, often includes doing, you know, some years of work, Um, With the higher wages in the United States that are available, even in the lowest paid sectors, Mm -hmm. you know, a farm worker makes 10 times as much in the United States as a farm worker in Mexico.
3: Wow. So you're going to see people and they are notoriously
4: underpaid, L- low paid, Yeah, to right? say, the worst to say that, yeah. paid mm-hmm. sectors in the United like States. Like they cannot
3: find other, you know, people to fill those roles. Exactly. And so people
4: are going to, you know, no wall is going to stop someone <laughs> from, you know, finding those jobs if they're yeah. available and they pay so highly. Um, what used to happen before we militarized the border after 9-11 um, and in the, you know, the late nineties, um, even before 9-11 is that people would come and go seasonally. They would come and go with contractions and expansions of the economy. They Mm -hmm. would come and go as the U.S. demanded more workers. Um, And what we ended up doing was basically imprisoning people who wanted to be temporary migrants in the U.S. because the risk and the cost of coming to the United States is so high that people don't risk that circularity anymore. So instead of going back and forth, they come and then as soon as they can, they bring more family members and they settle here semi-permanently, which a lot of people don't want to do. If they they wish to, I happen to believe they should be able to. It should be safe and available for them to... Migrate permanently. I don't think that there's any moral um, superiority to someone who's an engineer and wants to be a permanent resident over someone who has any other kind of role in our economy. Um, but a lot of people don't choose, don't actively wish to stay here forever. They certainly don't actively wish to be locked in the United States mm-hmm. and separated from families by this by this
3: immigration. Right. Um, and you write in, You you write in the book about um, you know a particular family mm-hmm. that um, came to the United States and you know worked and then eventually saved money and moved back to to Mexico mm-hmm. and opened up a, a kind of grocery store. Right. Yeah. A lot of people seek to do that. They seek to open a small business. Yeah. To buy, you know,
4: uh, build and and live in a home after they retire um, Mm -hmm. as soon as they've saved enough. And so I start the book with a story of a family that's done that
3: so 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 you know migration, okay, so kind of getting back we digress yeah. in, in the most wonderful and interesting <laughs> ways well. yeah um, so migration that was sort of taken off the table at the very beginning, and the trade deal you said was kind of um you know in, inherently skewed, um, what else did it kind of what else did it propose and then right look like you know in actuality right, so Mexico
4: really um had this vision, again, based on foreign direct investment being its uh, pathway to prosperity. And the way that they saw that was through really industrial sectors of the economy. They wanted to industrialize their economy. Um, They wanted to move people out of the countryside into these new modern, quote unquote, um, sectors and jobs. Mm-hmm. Like um, urbanization. Yes. So, urbanization and just shifting of sectors. So, even not even, you know, just. Uh, to the capital, but all, you know, kind of this proliferation all over Mexico of these industrial zones. Um, that was the vision, and part of that vision they acknowledged as collateral damage the possibility that a half million peasants would be displaced mm-hmm. because this was literally a campaign for de peasantization. They they saw this as, as the necessary precursor to the kind of prosperity that they thought would bring them into the future. Um, what they didn't anticipate, so they thought half a million would be displaced, mm-hmm. it was a half million per year for the first 15 years of the trade wow. deal. So it was many times the magnitude that they ever anticipated. Um, and the amount of pain that was caused continues till this day of just people being um very abruptly, um, unable to make
3: a living off the land in the ways that they used to do. Mm-hmm. And you, you, I think it seems like you argue throughout the book. And one of the things you state is you state is that, I mean, obviously the idea is that Mexicans would be better off with the trade deal. Um, it's pretty clear. But now, twenty point five million more Americans are poor than well, Mexicans. that's as of two thousand. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, Mexicans um, or were are poor. Uh, than in, you know, from 2014 to to 2019. Yeah. From 1994 to 2014. Yes. So which seems very ironic. In the
4: first 20 years. Yeah. We really have
3: not seen the poverty numbers budge.
4: And in fact, I was sitting at the you know, at the desk of one of the architects of Mexico's anti-poverty policy in the federal government. And he said, we need to acknowledge that we haven't moved the needle on poverty in the last two decades. Mm -hmm. Um, This is really... frightening because that was the purpose of NAFTA. The purpose of the pain was this future prosperity. Um, And instead, you know, if you look at the rest of Latin America, the countries that didn't have a trade deal, poverty has dropped um, double digits, close to 20 percent on average in the rest of Latin America. So the fact that Mexico still has this really persistently high poverty rate um, really shows us that the trade deal has failed at delivering what it was supposed to deliver Mm -hmm. um there are lots of new billionaires in mexico (laughs) bonus Um, and they you know are quite happy with the deal and they'll do a lot you know a lot uh they'll go really out of their way to make sure that it gets you know that it's perpetuated um into the future but that doesn't benefit the vast majority of people
3: so what are some of the other repercussions? I mean, it seems like, so was the agreement successful in encouraging a large part of the population to move towards the like auto and, you know, manufacturing kind of sectors? Um, was that successful? So those industries have exploded. Um,
4: Mexico is now a hotbed for um car production, for for aeronautics, for all kinds of industrial production. You see plants for Audi and for Volkswagen and other companies. Um, you see, you know, entire aeronautics industries, um, a lot of components, um, things that go into the products that we, um, you know, buy in the U.S. consumer tech goods um, oftentimes have components that are produced in Mexico. And one of the things that NAFTA favors is piecemeal in, um, manufacturing mm-hmm. so that, you know, one co- factory um, will, one plant will produce one tiny little piece of like a larger set yeah, yeah. of components. So we have seen that. The thing is that, like the United States, um, a lot of these jobs are trending towards automation. Uh, robots are doing a lot more of the work. Um, There is work for people with engineering degrees, and Mexico is getting pretty good at um, educating people with engineering degrees, and Mm -hmm. they can find work at the highest echelons of these industries. But that remains, like here, a relatively small percentage of the population. Right. And so there's a lot of people who aren't finding a new place in the economy. And, you know, like... We saw in the 2016 um, presidential campaigns, um, there there are scapegoats, right? So in the United States, we saw both Trump and Bernie Sanders talking about NAFTA being a bad deal for U.S. workers. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of arguments that can be made about that. Um, but the way that Trump framed it was that Mexico was winning at the U.S.'s expense. Yeah. And if you ask the average Mexican, they don't feel like winners. They, yeah. The average person, just like here... Feels like they're scrambling and hustling harder than ever before to stay in the same place. Yeah. Um, the bottom has fallen out of their, you know, their lifestyle, their ability to provide for their families. Everything is increasingly precarious, and so people are really disadvantaged in both countries. And that was the, you know, one of the main reasons why I was interested in writing this book because mm-hmm. I don't think that we see ourselves in the United States often enough. As having um, way more in common with the average person in Mexico than we do
3: differences and common cause. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, what are the, with, with, you know, to, to talk specifically about kind of food production, yeah. um, what have the repercussions been over the past couple of decades on food production in Mexico specifically and in the U.S.? Yeah.
4: So um, there have been sort of contrary trends. Um, so in the United States, because of NAFTA, we have more access than ever before to a lot of really delicious stuff. Mm-hmm. Our avocados, um, our limes, chiles, um, peppers, cucumbers, tomatoes, um, mangoes are coming from Mexico. Um, so year round here in New York City, we can eat all of those, you know, delicious foods with no, you know, worries that it might be the middle of winter. Um in Mexico, paradoxically, it's been the opposite. So Mexico has seen a decline in the quality of the average person's diet. Um, people are eating less fruits and vegetables, and they're eating about 20% fewer tortillas, which is the main staple of the Mexican diet going back thousands of years.
3: Which seems to be the thing that you kind of use as the, mm-hmm. um, the canary, I don't know, canary in the Yeah. Diet. That's the sort of way. It's I'm so lo- emblematic. Yes, yes. It's just yes. so
4: central to the story because... You know, Mexico was the subject of a genocidal conquest by the Spanish, but they kept their tortillas. Right. Um, it was subject to wave after wave of, you know, kind of plans for industrialization, plans to mechanize tortilla production and mechanize corn production. And none of these things really diminished the centrality of, and the ubiquity of tortillas in mm-hmm. the average person's diet um, until NAFTA. And now yeah. we see this really dramatic shift away from the milpa. Milpa is the field that um, is where corn is grown in small scale farming, okay. corn and beans and chilies are, and squash are intercropped. Okay. And so the soil is replenished, the nutrients, the micronutrients of the soil are
3: replenished. How food is supposed to be produced. Exactly. Essentially. It's yeah.
4: sustainable. It can go on forever and ever, basically. Um, you don't require, you know, um, a whole lot of equipment. Um, the corn, Pesticides. Which might, you don't need. Pesticides, The corn, which might blow over if it were by itself, is held up literally by the beans, mm-hmm. you know, intertwining around it. So we see this incredible um, system for producing this main food crop. Um, but the milpa-based diet is constituting less and less and less of a proportion of people's, Everyday foods. And instead, we see people consuming a hugely increased amount of ultra processed foods. So Mexico sadly is now number one consumer in the world of instant noodles, to give one example. Which seems
3: so bizarre. Mm -hmm. I mean, for given kind of their Tra- food traditions. It's
4: tragic. Yeah, it's really tragic. I mean, we're talking about one of the greatest cuisines in, in the world.
3: So there's no demand for like exporting of Mexican corn, or it's just like a it's just like a flood so, on the Mexican market yeah. of U.S. cheap cheap corn and so. And thank
4: goodness this is a food policy podcast <laughs> because I think your listeners might be nerdy enough to care along with me, yes, um, about this. So there's a problem with with that equivalency in terms of how we think about corn. So the, the deal that kind of the devil's bargain mm-hmm. with NAFTA was the idea of comparative uh, advantage and comparative advantage is an idea in economics that if, If one place can do something better and more efficiently than another place, then that place should do all of that thing. Mm -hmm. And the other places should specialize in what they're good at. And then everybody can just buy each other's goods. So under the logic of comparative efficiency, the United States, because it's number one in in yield of corn. Iowa corn fields produce, I think it's, um, 10, uh, tons, um, per hectare of, of corn. Um, and in Mexico it's about 1.8. Nowhere else in the world comes anywhere near Iowa. China is number two, but it's still you know vastly small smaller yields than the United States. The United States has figured out how to grow grow you know industrial corn in larger quantities. Yeah, than are really good at that ever in world history. But not
3: necessarily <laughs> corn for human production though.
4: Bingo. So the thing with it is that we grow corn in the United States that's been genetically modified. And, you know, the amount of technology that goes into getting that yield is, you know, shocking. I mean, we know about this from, you know, everything from Michael Pollan's books to, you know, the documentary King Corn. You can Mm -hmm. see just the incredible um, investment that that yield requires between chemicals and pesticides and genetically modified seeds and million dollar tractors and corn subsidies and consolidated farms that are super flat so that you can get your million dollar tractor up and down the rows of corn all of these things go into producing that super high yield Mm -hmm. mexican corn the heirloom varieties of corn and it's there's dozens of them historically um, were micro-adapted to very specific eco-niches. So, you know, this side of the hill might have one variety of corn that was better for the sunny side of the slope, and on the other side of the slope that gets more rain, it might be another, you know, slightly different varietal of corn. Biodiversity. Biodiversity. um, Very irregular, you know, the small-scale farms are very irregular plot sizes. There's no tractor that's going to get in there to help them. They do everything by hand. It's, um, it's a very small yield, but guess what? They are spending often nothing, right? (laughs) No pesticides. Yeah. They don't feed into necessarily. Some people do use, you know, some, some herbicides, some pesticides, but historically, obviously none, um, no tractors, sometimes not even an animal to help, um, No
3: irrigation. That seems not great for like U.S. corporations. No,
4: there's (laughs) no money to be made. Right. And guess how people get their seeds? They save them Mm -hmm. from one year to the next. Well, obviously Monsanto you know, is not interested in that, that. right? Because they are patenting seeds with certain properties and so they make them sterile. So in other words, you know, the yield of Mexican corn is small, but the inputs are small. So one of the things that I point out in the book is that I think that this is a really problematic understanding of efficiency. I think we've gotten efficiency wrong. I don't think that the U.S. should be going growing all the corn for everybody because mm-hmm. we grow it in such an intensive, tech-intensive, capital-intensive, unsustainable, environmentally unsustainable way. Um, and so, yeah, it's cheap and plentiful, but what are you know at what cost, really? Um, so, because of that devil's bargain, where Mexico decided they didn't need to grow corn anymore in order to be prosperous, they needed to make Volkswagens and buy their corn on the U- on the global market from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we see this diminishment in the small-scale subsistence farm. We see this diminishment in the centrality of corn tortillas, um, and we see this flood, um, which was, you know, not instantaneous because there were certain protections, but they they almost, you know, they, they were kind of jumped over and avoided and and um, pushed out of the way very rapidly. Um, this flood of, you know, U.S. GMO industrial corn into Mexico. And you know and your listeners know that most of the corn growing in Iowa can't be eaten. Mm -hmm. It's not our sweet corn that we eat on the cob in August and September. It's, you know, it's starchy. It's made for feeding animals. It's Mm -hmm. made for making corn syrup and corn starch and ethanol. So it's not for making tortillas or tamales. So just because there's suddenly more cheap corn doesn't mean that people are actually able to eat in the way that
3: they used to eat. Okay, we're going to have to take a really quick commercial break. Yep. Um, Didn't hear a word from our sponsors, um, but stay tuned. All right.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland, made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of the Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach Cave Age cheeses, Der Scharfe Max, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit MEUSA.com.
3: Okay, and we're back um, on Eating Matters, where today we're talking all about NAFTA with author Alicia Galvez, um, who recently uh, penned the book Eating NAFTA, Trade, Food Policies, and the Destruction of Mexico. Okay, so I want to shift and talk about one of the other kind of main repercussions of of this trade agreement and that is obesity and diet related disease so one of the statistics that you said in the book was that 71.3 percent of the population of the mexican population is classified as overweight which i think is actually slightly higher than than u.s which is shocking yeah, to, I, I didn't even know. I like. I really thought that we took the cake in that. Yeah,
4: we did. And then Mexico usurped the number one spot, and now sadly, actually, Chile has usurped Mexico. Wow. Um, which, by the way, has you know a very intertwined uh, trade environment with the U.S., and so it's for a lot of the same reasons. Right. It's The you know ultra processed food environment um, and this transformation of lifestyles that is really you know exposing us to this cocktail of you know. Very toxic products made with toxic chemicals, um, and really s- distancing us from you know the kinds of things that
3: used to used to sustain health and well being. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the role in soda? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you well, know, like what are some thing? examples of those yeah. of those kinds of um, products that we see? I mean, I'm assuming they're like yeah. the like you said, cheap processed food.
4: Yeah. So Mexico is number one consumer also in the world of soda. Um, Soda plays a big role in in the average person's consumption. Um, Part of the reason is that Mexico has a very underdeveloped um, water system. So a lot of people are unable to access um, free potable water through their faucets, and so when people go to buy all of the things that they need to, you know, stay alive and not be dehydrated, yeah, um, they actually are presented with option, you know, lots of options in bottles, including soda, being often cheaper. priced cheaper than bottled water, mm-hmm. um, and we see this incredible, um, really craven um, profit-seeking on the part of a lot of the corporations in the sense that. By the same measure that soda has come to be understood to be kind of universally unhealthy in the United States and in a lot of places, we've seen this dip in consumption on the basis of consumer awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, the soda companies, instead of kind of saying, you know, our bad, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll stop making this, you That's know, poisonous happen. product, yeah. they double down in other parts of the world, um, hoping to sell as much soda as they can to compensate for the decline in some other countries like the U.S. Um, And also because they anticipate the big tobacco moment when it's going to become undeniable and they're actually going to be held accountable for the health consequences of their products. Um, And until then, they're going to sell all the soda they can. So Mexico has actually been quite... um, forward thinking in terms of passing a soda tax at the federal level to try to diminish soda consumption which
3: was huge Huge. i mean they did that well beyond well before uh you know any any state or locality was able to do that exactly in in the united states and like
4: here the soda companies did everything they could to block it and to stop it they sat at the bargaining table they you know got their hands into, you know, uh, got there, got whispered in the ears of legislators. Um, there was even allegations that the New York times exposed about two years ago in December about, uh, spyware being used to spy on nutritional Probably. advocates. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of shocking. You don't think of diet, dietitians and nutritionists being the subject of, you know, spying, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you do, if it's like a multi, multi-billion, <laughs> dollar, multi-billion industry. dollar industry, yeah, absolutely. yeah. And so, um, what we've seen, you know, one of the I get a little bit um, into the you know the weeds in my analysis in the
3: book. That's, um, that's good on this show. Yeah, we like that. Yeah, <laughs>
4: because I actually, even though it is very progressive and radical on the global stage, I actually point out the ways that a lot of people in Mexico, a lot of the nutrition advocates say that actually the soda companies were able to really. Um, dull the the soda tax um, and make it you know about half as effective as it should have been, um, both in terms of how big it is. It's one peso per liter, and the you know the the mathematical modeling said it should have been two pesos per liter to actually have the desired effect on consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because you know there are things like the so the proceeds from the soda tax are supposed to go to providing potable water in every public school in Mexico. And I think 2% of public schools, you know, after two years have water available to their students, uh, drinking water. So um, we're seeing just a lot of, um, you know, worrisome aspects. And one of the aspects that I get into the most is the way that I think um, a lot of these policies are actually premised on a notion of everyday people, average citizens, being... culpable for their health problems. And so there's something about diet-related illness that even people who experience these things tend to blame themselves. If only I were more disciplined, if only I exercised more, if only I didn't have such a sweet tooth, I would be healthy. Um, And what I came to realize is that, one, you know, public health and epidemiologists Research shows pretty convincingly that it's structural factors more than anything else, more than behavior, more than individual choices, that determine diet-related illness. And and what are some examples
3: of some of those structural changes?
4: So, income levels, um, access—you know—housing, education, education, uh, employment precarity, trauma, exposure to violence, Mm -hmm. um, family separation, um, exposure to chemicals. Mexico has a very high rate of kidney disease. That's been associated with some of the chemicals used in agriculture. Um, so a lot of these things are are really. Assaulting metabolically uh, the human body um, in ways that are sort of unprecedented in human history. And the fact that the body responds, you know, there have been studies, for example, on mice. You know, I don't want to get into too much of the detail because we could be here all day, but, you know, there have been studies on mice that, you know, exposure to certain chemicals leads to weight gain, even though um, calorie consumption is reduced. Um, and so a lot of these chemicals that people are being exposed to are known obesogenics. Um, and so, but the thing with um, with the personal behavior hypothesis is that it wash it allows the government and the corporations to wash their hands and say, you know, let's put in a park or put in a bike lane um, or put in a walking trail in, in an urban area and we've done our part we don't need to worry about these larger structural issues right. um, and if people are sick it's their own choice it's their own problem or lack of discipline and I think this is a real problem of our understandings of citizenship because if we're blaming people um, for this epidemic that's so closely you know it's 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 so it's it's too coincidental with NAFTA in the last 25 years, this spike, this unprecedented spike. You know, people didn't develop a sweet tooth in the last 25 years. Right. People didn't suddenly become, you know, couch potatoes in the last 25 years. In fact, yeah. a lot of the people who are suffering from these illnesses are people who have, you know, such strenuous commutes and, and work lives. It's, it just defies um, logic. Um, and yet we see this very handy alibi uh,
3: for bad policy. Do you think that this um, kind of trend in the, in the Mexican diet was inevitable with a broader movement towards globalization and opening of, of uh, you know, borders to free trade? Or do you think this is something kind of unique to this particular trade agreement? Yeah,
4: I mean, there are people like Corinna Hawks in the UK who have found that Globalization comes with diet-related illness. <laughs> yeah, over and over and over again, uh, globally we see you know these two hand in hand. Is that um, just
3: you know trade policies with the United States, or is that more? More broad broadly. Broadly. Yeah.
4: Um, you know, there's a public health scholar in South Africa who's noted how some of the companies peddling ultra processed, you know, super high sugar foods, pa- pa- packaged foods in South Africa are actually South African corporations. Um, it's not necessarily US corporations, but it is a, a, a model. Of economic development that really emerged out of neoliberalism, out of US financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, that really privileged foreign direct investment over um, the kinds of investment that governments historically had into the health and well being of their countries, right? So, mm-hmm. cutting funding on public health care, cutting funding on education, cutting funding um, on all kinds of things that, you know, food food distribution systems for example that used to help balance out some of the inequalities that people faced
3: poverty fighting measures exactly um one thing and we have to unfortunately wrap up uh, soon um even though i wish i could talk to you all day long um i want to talk about something that you you know point to in the book which is as um you know as as Mexican traditional foods have been made available, more available and are kind of seen especially in the states as like high value status um, foods that are like elevated and reinterpreted by global eat chefs. The flip side of that is that um you know Mexicans are eating right like the more like they can't kind of afford yeah. the um the like this sort of food that's been championed by um, like elite foodies stuff with that in, in quotations. So I wonder if you can you know and it seems like I mean the, the the part about that where Mexicans can't afford their the most like basic sort of the way that they've eaten for generations is, Horrible, mm-hmm. no question about that. Um, I wonder if you kind of see the flip side of that, where uh, Mexican cuisine is sort of being elevated and, and, and celebrated by um, like a different group of people as a as a bad thing.
4: It's it's not. It's, I can't say it's a bad thing. I love right. it. I love getting hand ground corn tortillas in New York City. Right. Um, when I moved here from California to go to college many years ago, you couldn't get tortillas uh, to save your life in New York City. Um, I love that this wonderful cuisine is finally getting respect in the global sphere. I love that you know Top Chef and you know all of these. You know Renee Redzepi, who's arguably one of the best chefs in the world. Mm-hmm. You know says that tortilla. Are the perfect food. I think this is wonderful. I think it's overdue recognition of this incredible millennial cuisine. The problem is that when people like Rene Redzepi, you know, um, who you know, I think really sees himself as paying homage to the humble cuisine of uh, of the milpa, um When he does it, he is also profiting by it, right? So he had a pop-up in Tulum uh, last year. I remember, yeah. He sold out six months in advance um, tickets for dinner in this pop-up restaurant before it existed at $600 a head, right? Um, Plus uh, another $150 in taxes and fees. Um, You know, those resources, I'm not even sure they went through Mexico. They probably went through the cloud to a... Danish bank. Um, He did do a lot of things to hire local people and, you know, as he said, to transfer some of the wealth. But there's a little bit of a plundering happening in terms of, you know, some people getting really, um, you know, able to charge really high prices in this sort of elite food um, world that's very cosmopolitan. At the same time that people you know, can't eat this way, for whom that was their food, right, right. originally. Um, and there's something about narrative capital, there's something about storytelling that is enabling some people to profit wildly. Um, and I think it really, I think they're two sides of the same coin. I think one thing is actually made possible by the other thing. I yeah. think that if, you know, working people in Mexico were still eating. You know, you could still walk down any street in Mexico and have mind-blowing, you know, tacos in the same way. Or people in their homes were growing corn and chiles and and squash and able to make it in the same way they always did. I don't think anybody could get away with charging these, you know, astronomical prices for these uh, for these
3: products. So I think that this, these are two things that go together. I mean, and that kind of leads me to my to my second question, which is as a cultural, and this, I, you know, I really sort of struggle with understanding this, like as and as a cultural anthropologist, what crosses the line between like the celebration and, inter- and, and um, integration of a certain culture's traditions, you know, into American society? You know what? Where does the line get crossed between like celebration and then it becomes cultural appropriation?
4: Right. I think we need to, um, and like, what is that term? You know, yeah. It really, kind it's of complicated, means. and I think sometimes it gets used as sort of a weapon where people get accused of cultural appropriation. You know, as a kind of call out um, that doesn't have a lot of substance. But I think what ends up happening, I think, when we should be concerned is when we see the object being separated from its. People, Right. So when the people for whom this is their tradition mm-hmm. um, are absent or invisible or silent and somebody else is kind of taking their thing <laughs> and making a lot of money off of it, I think that's when we can call cultural appropriation for what it is um, you know I think there are ways to be collaborative and there are ways to um, elevate and amplify the voices of those who to whom this is their, their culture um, going back thousands of years um, you know the communities in Mexico that have developed this cuisine and find ways to use our technology and our networks and social media to um, shed a light rather than you know turn our. The a spotlight onto people like Red Zeppi, who certainly already have plenty of attention.
3: That is true. Okay, very, very last question um, before we have to wrap up. And, you know, I want to um, just to quote Bill Clinton in 1993. <laughs> he says, quote, we cannot stop global change. We cannot repeal international economic competition that is everywhere. We can only harness the energy to our benefit. I'm wondering, you know, it seems to me that we can't quite at this point turn back the tide of 25 years of globalization. So what do you propose to do? And, you know, specifically, what would you like to see from this renegotiation of this trade agreement?
4: Yeah. I mean, this, you know, this moment puts me in a strange spot because we have a president precisely who is trying to throw the brakes on globalization. But I think we all see that that's a little bit reckless um, and not really realistic. Right. There's a lot of pain that would be caused by somehow trying to sever the ties that are at this point quite well developed. I think for me, what I would like to see is a great, you know, in the interest of social justice in the interest of greater equality and less inequality. I would like to see um, more people at the table so that we in the United States and people in Mexico come to see each other, as having a lot more in common than we have differences and common cause, so that these deals can't be done in the dark and you know behind closed doors um, without including our interests. The interests of working people, of consumers, um, need to be elevated over the interests of corporations. And I think that basic equation of who's you know who's benefiting by these things is it corporate profits or is it the general population Um, if we can push that and say that we need deals that are sustaining of health and the earth and Mm -hmm. our well-being and bring us closer together rather than further apart um, that would be my goal
3: Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I loved talking with you and just uh, quickly, where can we, where can um, listeners find your book? Amazon, um, any store, the UC Press has a,
4: a coupon discount, I believe, right. Um, right now that the book is, is coming out. It can be
3: ordered directly from the press. All right, wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Um, big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as to our engineer, the one and only Matt Patterson, the best engineer on the face of the planet. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Leute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.